With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's not about what Hannah Jane Combs did. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person, regardless of who's in the White House. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God Damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God Damn America for treating our citizens as less than humans. God and the so-called Negro has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of the white man. Then they can bring the issues that are under the rug out on top of the table and take an intelligent approach to get the problem solved. That's the only way that they'll ever do it. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. And good evening to all of you out there. This is Our Common Ground, and we're so glad to have you with us tonight. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be looking at the economics of the economic crisis in America. What must we do for recovery? What is the status? and the needs of our community as we face one of the greatest financial and economic 
challenges since the Great Depression. Our guest tonight, and we welcome him back to Our Common Ground, Dr. William Sandy Darity, Jr. He's the arts and science professor of public policy studies and professor of African and African-American studies and economics at Duke University, the, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he is a visiting professor at Stanford University um, this year. And we thank Sandy for being with us, and he's going to be joining us very shortly. But uh, I do have a couple of notes I want to um, make before we get started in looking at our featured topic of the evening. And one of them is about last week, and I apologize. I know what it's like to have feelings of great abandonment. In the last 30 minutes of our program last night, uh, you must have thought that I walked away to uh, make a sandwich and never to return. That was not the full truth. What was happening and we can't blame it on our studios here at Blog Talk Radio. What we have to blame it on is that I put my phone on mute to take a little cough. And I began to talk about the issues of Occupy America, Occupy Your Black Mind, Occupy Our Prisons, and Occupy Our Congress. And I talked for 30 minutes while the phone was on mute. Essentially, my mic was on mute, mute, and I was so busy and so interested in why I wasn't getting any calls at 347-838-9852 that it never occurred to me to look down at the mic to see if it was on. My board was full of colors, my clock was running perfectly, and I do apologize. I would never abandon you. This is the sanctuary for black thought, black ideas, and for the kind of friendship and and good treatment that we all so need at the end of a tough week. I would never abandon you, and I do apologize. And now I have made a mental note that it will not ever happen again. The other thing that I do want to, uh, another note I want to make is that many of you have seen me in the chat room at the India Declare show, and I've been talking about shopping baby. Well, I'm expecting a, a new Grand Prince, number two. Grand Prince number two, and it will make three grandchildren for me, and my daughter is expecting to bring me this royal package sometime at the end of the month of December, and while she might not have nesting syndrome, I have big nesting syndromes because, as you know, Grand Princess is off at college, and she is well ensconced in, in to her college life and college career, and uh, Grand Prince uh, Miles uh, has not returned to our Common Ground Studios to make us another promo because he is very busy with his swimming and all of the things that boys do. So here is a grandmom that does have a tinge of abandonment. 
and I am really looking forward to the new addition to our family, and it will be very nice that this baby will join us during the Kwanzaa season. For those of you who are looking at our schedule coming up on December 3rd, joining me will be the actor, activist, and author, Isaiah Washington. And on December 10th, the author and performing artist, uh, Professor E. Patrick Johnson. He is the author of Sweet Tea, an oral history of gay men in the South. And I'm very excited to have both of those gentlemen with me. And our first guest coming into the new uh, year will be Alea Bundles. She is the granddaughter and the uh, overseer of the history of Madam C.J. Walker, and we're so glad that she will be joining us as our first guest in the new year. Next week, uh, we will be off, but we will be offering uh, to you uh, all of our programs that are on demand. If you have missed one or would like to revisit one of our programs, uh, you can do so at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Now, uh, the other thing that I want you to know that this week we have begun to publish um, two online e-zines. One is a daily newspaper, and we are calling it Scribbling Race on Common Ground. And uh, we'll be posting where you can find that in our chat room. And if you are listening and you'd like to join our chatters for discussion about this program, you you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, register into or enter into as a guest at Blog Talk and join the discussion. And there is always a robust discussion in our chat room during our broadcast. The other e-zine is a magazine, an Our Common Ground magazine, which we have labeled Our Common Ground Ominous, Omnibus. And we're going to also post in the chat room where you can find that. For those of you who are not part of our mailing list, you can do so by going to, by writing us at OC, OCG Info at OurCommonGround.com, and we'd be happy to put you on our correspondence list so you'll know about all of these things. Featured in our magazine are um, guest profiles, all of the people who have, over the last 20 years, been our guests. There is no other broadcaster, I believe, that cannot boast the just prominent of the voices that we have brought to our microphones, uh, people who are even not with us any longer. Um, we are celebrating our 20th year of broadcasting Bold, Brave, and Black at Our Common Ground, and I'm quite proud of the work that we have done. You see, this is not serious radio, but it is serious radio with intent. Not serious with an I, but serious with an E. And we thank you for being part of it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Our Common Ground. And we're going to be talking about the economic crisis in America tonight with 
Dr. Uh, William Sandy Darity, and um, I'll tell you more about him. And we're going to get started in our feature. He's going to be joining us right after this. But there are 37 million people living in poverty in America, and one-third of these are black. Statistics say that white Americans have assets that are 12 times that of blacks, and 70% of elderly blacks have no financial assets at all. Yes, we love Oprah. Yes, she's a beautiful woman. Yes, we applaud her. But nearly half of all black children live beneath the poverty line a figure almost identical to that which existed on the day Martin Luther King was assassinated. 1.2 billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day. And every year, 6 million children die from malnutrition and over 11 million children die from preventable diseases. So those of us who got a little something, think about it. P. Diddy may have his own clothing line and a great Manhattan address, but far more blacks are moving into America's prisons than into the middle class. Blacks are incarcerated in America at four times the incarceration rate of blacks in South Africa during the apartheid era. On any given day, about one in three black males is in prison on probation or on parole. Close to two million children in the United States have at least one parent in state or federal prison. And that number is rising fast. Clarence Thomas may sit on the highest court in the land, but what does that mean to the masses? Prosecutors in America are three times more likely to recommend the death penalty with a black defendant than with a white one even if their alleged crimes are identical. Four in ten inmates on death row are black. Which means that the black man should control the politics of his own community and control the politicians who are in his own community. My personal economic philosophy is uh, also black nationalism, which means that the black man should have a hand in controlling the economy of the so-called Negro community he should be developing the type of knowledge that will enable him to own and operate the businesses and thereby be able to create employment for his own people, for his own time. And the uh, social philosophy also... Businesses and aspiring wealth and money. When our organizations came in, the Urban League and NAACP, between 1905 and 1912, what they looked for black folk was going back to that old public policy that was set up in 1660 saying black folks should be a labor, subordinated, non-competent labor class. So what they were looking for for us was to do what? Find what? Jobs. Which means you were to be employees. Never employers, but to be employees. And so immediately after the, Civil, after the First World War, immediately after the First World War, blacks started getting a little uppity when they came back from, from World War I. And, uh, and whites in the South didn't like that, and so you had major conflict. And the whites, so racism intensified in the country. Blacks had farms, it, it, some of the white radical groups started burning their crops. They started lynching on average of two to three blacks a day. And they poured kerosene on their, on their cotton and ran blacks out of the South. Those blacks then, by 1920, were moving north. They moved into Gary, Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, New York. 
and went into the factories. And when they started moving out, whites then started working on trying to get a replacement for them. Because at that point in time, black folk were picking on average about 20 pounds of cotton an hour. So whites started inventing the machine. And by, 19, uh, by 1940s, blacks had invented a machine called a cotton picking machine that can now pick 1,000 pounds of cotton an hour. So by 1947, black folk were obsolete in the South. They no longer needed you in the South. You were through in the South by 1947, machine that replaced you. But all those blacks who drifted north in those big cities had gone into the steel mills, automobile plants, chemical plants, meat packing plants, and were doing reasonably well. Blacks did reasonably well in the north between about 1940 and 1966 in those factories. Then all of a sudden in about 1966, guess what happened again? Technology caught up and black folk went obsolete in the north. And ironically, blacks went obsolete in 1966, right in the midst of the civil rights movement. When Martin Luther King was saying, free at last, free at last, thank God we're free at last, he was not talking about black folk. He was talking about for the first time in history, whites no longer needed black folk. And whites were free. They now had invented a computer and computer-driven machinery, they no longer needed you. So the factories started closing down in the north at that point in time, and that's when your crime started going up too. However, the information revolution has a weakness, and the weakness is precisely the educational system. The United States has the worst educational system known to science. Our graduates compete regularly at the level of third world countries. So how come the scientific establishment of the United States doesn't collapse? If we're producing uh, a generation of dummies, if the stupid index of America keeps rising every year, just watch network television and reality shows, right? How come the scientific establishment of the United States doesn't collapse? Let me tell you something. Some of you may not know this. America has a secret weapon. That secret weapon is the H-1B. Without the H-1B, the scientific establishment of this country would collapse. Forget about Google. Forget about Silicon Valley. There would be no Silicon Valley without, without the H-1B. And you know what the H-1B is? It's the genius visa, okay? You realize that in the United States, 50% of all PhD candidates are foreign-born. At my system, one of the biggest in the United States, 100% of the PhD candidates are foreign-born. The United States is a magnet sucking up all the brains of the world, but now the brains are going back. They're going back to China. They're going back to India. And people are saying, oh my God, there's a Silicon Valley in India now. Oh my God, there's a Silicon Valley in China. Sooner or later, just by staying a straight course. And for that reason, you see, Ted Turner and Donald Trump can go bankrupt, become a millionaire, go bankrupt, become a millionaire, over and over again. They're making a difference. A black person, if he ever becomes a millionaire one time, you got to hold him because he'd never do it twice. Because, see, a black person is born with zero. Why is he born with zero? When a white child comes in with 87%, a black child comes in with zero. Because it's called inherited wealth. I just told you everything is locked into the white culture. And so what a, and a black child cannot inherit anything because what we've been focusing on. We have been dealing with symptoms and not problems. For, for all these years. We talk about how can a black kid, a black kid cannot inherit food stamps, he can inherit welfare, he can inherit, inherit public housing, he cannot inherit a job. So he comes in at zero. He cannot compete against a white child because as parents, you're letting them down. You're not giving your child a fair break. 
Black adult unemployment is twice as high as white unemployment and has been so for more than 30 years. And it is worse for black youth. We see our great actors on TV and the movies playing black professionals in dramatic roles and blacks are dramatically underrepresented in most professions outside of sports and entertainment. We are 13% of the American population, but we are only 3.2% of lawyers, 3% of doctors, less than 1% of architects, 2% of psychiatrists, 2% of psychologists, and only 4% of social workers. Black males with college degrees can only expect to earn as much as a white male with a high school diploma. Light-skinned blacks have a 50% better chance of getting a job than dark-skinned blacks. And blacks are rejected twice as often for small business loans than whites of comparable credit. Maybe all of Bill Cosby's children did well in his TV show. But seven of ten black children cannot read in the fourth grade. And the numbers are hardly better by high school. It is estimated that 45% of blacks are functionally illiterate. And they are almost three times more likely than white children to be labeled mentally retarded. The rappers may look like they're living the high life in their videos. But nearly 70% of black families are now headed by single women. 67% of black children are born out of wedlock. And the pregnancy rate of our young girls is twice that of whites. And blacks account for 41% of all abortions. The, uh, the question of whether or not the debt has really been paid by the blood that was lost during the course of the Civil War. And uh, I think there's, there's, uh, there's, that should be factored in. I mean, the, 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 uh, the moral the moral claim that's associated with ending slavery is, is a very important one. But on the other hand, uh, had slavery not been instituted, had not been made a, a legal dimension of American life, there would have been no need to do that at all. Uh, so, uh, and furthermore, there was always the possibility that white male America, which white male America were the only individuals who could participate in the political process formally and at that point in time, white male America could have decided to end slavery without resorting to warfare. Uh, there were proposals afoot for compensated uh, emancipation of the slaves. Uh, that was a possibility that was, was seriously and passionately advanced by Abraham Lincoln. So there were options other than going to war, they were not taken. The other argument against reparations that has gained the most attention is that the people currently asked to pay had nothing to do with the injustices in the past. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Well, there's actually uh, uh, several responses to that. Uh, first and foremost uh, is, is the fact that uh, the injustices of, of the past are, are not as distant as uh, we are accustomed to, to thinking. If, if we were to thinking about, if we were thinking about slavery itself, uh, my sons are the fifth generation out of slavery. And so if you think of it from a generational standpoint, uh, it's not that, that far in the past. There are some families where there are still living members who are actually only the third generation from slavery. Those individuals are 100 years in age or, or older. But, uh, but again, from a generational standpoint, it's not that far back. 
But now if we also address the fact that subsequent to slavery, the United States did not immediately become a true democracy, but practiced a hundred years of political exclusion of African Americans uh, through the Jim Crow system, uh, then we're talking about uh, a, a system that did not go out of existence in any formal way until 1964. And with respect to schools and school, deseg school desegregation, school desegregation really doesn't come into practice in the United States until the early 1970s. Uh, so now we're not talking about very, a very distant past and we're not talking about uh, huge numbers of Americans who had nothing to do with, uh, with, with that process. Uh, but I would also add that for individuals who are more recent immigrants, I would argue that when one immigrates to a country, you immigrate to its history, and that you immigrate to the responsibilities and obligations that that, that society has, as well as the opportunities and benefits that it provides you. Whatever we are, we still need an action program that will eliminate these evils that are in our community. And this is what we're trying to do with the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. Do you consider yourself militant? <laughs> I can throw myself mouth. <laughs>
Dr. Darity was a fellow at the National uh, Humanities Center and a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors in 1984. He's a past president of the National Economic Association and the Southern Economic Association. Uh, he has a BA, magna cum laude, in economics and political science from Brown University and a PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is the arts and sciences professor of public policy and, and professor of African and American, African American studies and economics at Duke University, visiting at Stanford University for this academic year. Dr. William Sandy Darity, thank you so very much for joining us once again at Our Common Ground. It's a pleasure, Janice. Well, you know, I, I know that was a, a long intro, but I feel that these issues are so critical, and especially for us to understand the historical and cultural landscape in which we examine them. And I'm just so very pleased to, to have you with us again. And it seems as though not much has changed, but many things have gotten very worse, uh, very bad, much worse than when, when you were with us um, on our common ground. Can you give us, Sandy, an overview of what we're facing and what it means and 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 what the the legislative um initiatives that we're hearing from the president and from congress and I don't want I, I don't want to even know about Ron Ryan and John Boehner and what they're saying <laughs> and I know that you made a presentation uh, to the CBC in in January of this year in regard to your permanent full employment uh, proposal, can you can you just give us a full overview? Well, I can try to provide a, a snapshot description of the current situation, which is quite quite horrific at a certain level. Um, we now have uh, a national unemployment rate of about nine percent. And uh, that means that there's approximately 14 million people who are out of work. Uh, the way we define people as being jobless means that these are individuals who are looking for work but who are unable to find it. Uh, so there's also an additional 1 to 2 million people who uh, have probably given up looking for work altogether. So we refer to them as the discouraged unemployed. Uh, we also have a number of people whose employment doesn't really take the form of being particularly well paid. Uh, in fact, some people are counted in the ranks of the employed who are taking unpaid internships with a variety of corporations and institutions. And uh, there are many people who are counted in the ranks of the employed who have part-time work, even though they would prefer to be working full-time. Um, and, and one of the really disturbing dimensions of this is that close to half the people who are currently unemployed have been unemployed for at least 27 consecutive weeks. Uh, so the, the depth of the joblessness crisis is enormous. And when we start to think about the, uh, the racial dimensions of this, uh, as you know, 
there's there's kind of this standard uh, statistical regularity that emerges where the black rate of unemployment is uniformly or historically seems to be two times as high as the white rate of unemployment. And so the black rate of unemployment approaches uh, 16% uh, in contrast with the overall rate of unemployment. And, uh, and that means, in effect, that we're in a situation where virtually one in five African Americans is jobless. Uh, that's that's devastating. Uh, and this situation has, has gone on for now for uh, close to three full years. Uh, and uh, and there's no evidence of any significant change in sight under the current array of policies and practices that are being pursued. Well, it certainly has played itself out um, in in many ways politically as well as uh, economically, and you hear this cry, where are the jobs, where are the jobs? Dr. Darity, where are the jobs? Well, they're not there. <laughs> yeah. You know, strictly speaking. I mean, I mean, our economy is in its deepest economic downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And, uh, and there's no evidence that uh, the private sector is in the process of generating a sufficient amount of new jobs to make it possible to put uh, to put folks back to work at, at levels that we, we we're accustomed with, at levels that mean that we won't have the severe levels of poverty that we now have. In fact, our poverty rate now is as high as it was at the point in which the anti-poverty programs were initially adopted. Um, so the jobs aren't there. And one of the most disturbing aspects of the current situation is because of the financial problems that are faced at the state and local level, uh, public sector jobs are now are now evaporating. I believe we've lost about half a million public sector jobs since 2008, primarily at the state and local level. And that is, uh, that is having an offsetting effect for whatever increases in private sector employment are forthcoming. So th this is one of the reasons why I'm a fervent advocate for the construction of a federal job guarantee for all citizens and for the creation of a public sector job opportunity that functions as an employer of last resort for all Americans. Mm -hmm. And you've been touting this idea for now about six or seven years. Well, I'm not sure if it's that long, but it's, it's as long as the, of the, of the current depression at least. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm yeah. Now, let me ask you in January of this year, you made a presentation to the uh Congressional Black Caucus um Deficit Commission. Right. And, and they actually they incorporated the recommendation into their set of policy proposals for addressing the current crisis. And where did that go to? There's a congressional document that was produced by the CBC that, that was a report from their uh, Budget and Deficit Commission. And that report includes a set of policy proposals, and one of those policy proposals is the federal job guarantee. Mm -hmm. Now, is that part of, has it been um, extrapolated into 
uh, what the president calls his jobs bill. Now, the president's jobs bill primarily relies upon providing uh, incentives for the private sector through federal contracts and subsidies to construct the jobs that we need. Mm-hmm. And uh, my crude estimate of the potential impact of the federal jobs bill, if it were to be adopted, the president's jobs bill, uh, is that it would generate maybe about 2 million jobs. But mm-hmm. if we have approximately 14 million people who are jobless, then that's in some sense better, but it's certainly not good enough. It, it, it certainly uh, doesn't sound as though it's good enough. Now, let me ask you what you think the impact of the $787 billion stimulus package um, that you're proposing would be. Well, I'm not proposing oh. a stimulus package. I, I'm proposing a, uh, a job guarantee. It could have some of the effects of a stimulus package, and probably well, but, yeah, a stronger Yeah, I was thinking effect. of it as a stimulus package for individual, for citizens. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so I've estimated that it would cost about seven hundred fifty billion dollars. Um, there's a number of consequences. So, the first consequence is we would give people an opportunity to go back to work. Uh, second consequence is we would increase their incomes which would have the potential for uh, creating uh, greater consumption demand in the economy, which could, in effect, operate in the way in which people think of a stimulus package operating. So it's an old-fashioned consumption demand that would uh, provide greater incentives for uh, private businesses to raise their level of production and put more people to work themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and one of the most... One of the most attractive parts of of your proposal is that people could begin to do some forms of uh, under this federal job guarantee, um, which would provide basic job security. But they could also be in 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 involved with social socially useful work. That's right. Which is something uh, that the president does right. not talk about in his jobs package. Well, he he does to some degree to the extent that he's concerned, he expresses concerns about uh, infrastructure jobs, jobs that try to address uh, uh, the the roads and highways of of our society, uh, reconstruction of bridges and the like. So to the extent that he he mentions that as, as one of the dimensions of his proposal, then he is talking about uh, what we might call socially useful work, uh, but uh, but I, the scale of what is in the president's job package is very small, and again, it's still very much contingent on. I, I some people say t- they talk about incentives for the private sector. Essentially, I, I would argue what you're trying to do is bribe the private sector into doing the right thing, and I, mm-hmm. instead of doing that, why doesn't the federal government just directly hire people themselves? Mhm. You know, be, yeah, you're you're right in in addition to what the president is doing, we have already given the private sector some of those guarantees through tax loopholes and tax breaks and the entire package and they're still not doing uh they're enough. not putting they're not putting enough people to work. That that's absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um now explain to us give us a picture. 
give our, my audience a picture of what you are proposing specifically, how this would work, because you really get down to some of the details of the types of work and how it will impact not only the um, the income of persons who get back to work, but it would also benefit our society. Yes, yeah, so um, I think one way to construct this picture is to think about uh, the previous experience that we've had in this country with a similar type of program. Uh, so the, the examples that I draw upon as a precedent for this type of program are the Work Progress Administration, during uh, the Great Depression and the Civilian Conservation Corps during the Great Depression. And in fact, I think that the combination of those two programs put approximately 9 million citizens to work. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1936 alone, the Civilian Conservation Corps employed 3.5 million citizens. And so, uh, so one way to think about this or to visualize this is to go back and look at what happened with the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Work Progress Administration to give us a, a, uh, an image of how this program might look. But in terms of the specific types of jobs that I have in mind, I, I, I mentioned the nation's physical infrastructure, but I think we should also consider the nation's human infrastructure in a very wide sense. So this could include work to improve rapid transit service, parks and recreational areas. Uh, it could include the construction of high-quality preschools where, uh, with high-quality child care for working mothers, which would be preceded by the provision of in-depth training in child care and child development for the child care workers who are hired by the government. It could involve computer repair upgrades and various types of maintenance workers in the sanitation area, the food service areas, working in schools and hospitals. We could even have federal bank workers who would administer small business loans, student loans, and other bank services. We could be very creative. I, I think what, one of the things we'd want to do is to have state and local governments construct an inventory of the types of work that's needed to be done especially the types of work that's needed to be done that's not going to be taken up by the private sector uh, based upon private sector expectations about profitability. So this is socially useful work that's not likely to be covered uh, by the actions of the private sector. And uh, so we could have that inventory taken, and then we would attempt to construct a match between the skills and talents that the individuals who take up the federal jobs have with the kinds of uh, the kinds of, of job jobs that are needed, uh, there could be a training component for the program, uh, and probably there should be. They could give people skills that they don't already possess and make it possible for them to work in this wide array of jobs that uh, are socially necessary. And and I mean what you're saying, and I think I've said this to you before, Dr. Darity, that. It just sounds so logical. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds like a solution that is really a solution. The question that I have for you is in the annals of academia and economics. <laughs> I mean, the, the, world in which I, the world in which I live. <laughs> yes, the, the 
world in which you in, in the world in which you live, yeah. how in the, in the political context do you even begin to 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 build a strategy? I mean, we've got Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Oakland and Occupy U Davis and everything and Occupy Boston and everybody's being occupied with the exception of Occupy Congress and that is where the generation of the funds to do to to undertake such a program has to come from. So how do we begin to build a strategy for such a reasonable solution to what we face as a country? There's there's some possibilities that are actually uh, present in uh, in in the movement that you just you just mentioned. Um, and one of the complaints that's typically raised about Occupy Wall Street is that there's no evidence of any type of systematic program that the uh, participants of the movement are in favor of. Uh, so they're they're you know clearly quite justifiably upset about. Uh, the, the the current the current conditions in our society, but it's not clear that they are advancing any program of change with any kind of specific uh, with any kind of specifics. So uh, so so one possibility is uh, for the Occupy movement to develop a program of action where the federal job guarantee could be a central component. So that that's one possibility. Second possibility is for the president to become courageous. And to actually embrace or adopt or propose a program of this type, which would be far more substantial than what's proposed in his existing jobs bill. And then to take the stand that if it doesn't get support, if it's resisted or if it's opposed, that he's going to take this program to the nation in the next election and and encourage uh, the American people to vote for uh, for for the politicians who would support a program of this type. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's another possibility. But that, that requires uh, an act of political courage that's uh, somewhat unusual for our existing mm-hmm. president to, to, to Well, to take. I, I think that one of the, the problems with any um, uh, political activism that has to do with changing the ways in which the people's voices are heard has to do with we have to speak with one voice. And I know that all of the Occupy movements do have general uh, conferences at the beginning of the day, at the middle of the day, at the uh, end of the day. And um, for those of you out there who are listening who are involved with any Occupy movement, if you'd like to get a copy of this proposal, um, and begin to digest it with the organizations that you are involved in, you certainly can write to us at OCG info at Our Common Ground, because I think that that's the only way that this is going to be moved. And one of the things that I, 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 I think, Sandy, and we've talked about this a lot, I mean, um, that we've got to – raise the visibility of people like you uh, who have ideas, who have solutions, 
and the solutions are just so absolutely, one, simple, and two, have historical bearing for six, of, of success, and three, um, make sense, and there's not a lot of argument against. And But, but this is my problem, Sandy. Yeah. I get real concerned when you see something constructed that goes from A to B to C to D and to, at the end, uh, positive um, results and it's results-oriented, that there are people in the political process that start picking it apart. And that's what's going to happen, in my estimation, with uh, President Obama's jobs program. His initiative is going to be picked apart that it won't even matter by the time the Congress begins to act on it. So that's why I say, you know, it would have been better to come out with a much bolder proposal mm-hmm. and then to say, okay, uh, I realize that the existing Congress is unlikely to support this. So go to the American people and say, help me have a type of Congress in place in the next election, as a consequence mm-hmm. of the next election, that will make it possible for us to pass this kind of legislation. And and I think that one of the things that gets in the way of regular people in what's happening in Washington in regard to the stonewalling of everything coming out of the White House or the White House being stone-minded about what they need to do, and, 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 and this president makes me very nervous uh, because I think that he's trying to walk a line and in this environment, uh, it's absolutely um, a mistake to walk any line because you're right. We've got he has got to be bold. And so let me ask you a question. After the CBC wrote the report, and they probably sent it to the White House, has anyone from the Office of Domestic Affairs, the Economic? Uh, uh, gurus walking around in the White House and this er- Tom Earhart man, Earnhardt, uh, <laughs> who, who I mean, he got rid of every damn job in Ohio almost, and now he's the, the, the head of the, the committee, and then you've got the super committee uh, moving well, ahead. Well, I mean, what's even more telling is that uh, initially – the individuals who are the central economic advisors to the president were the folks who had been in place uh, who made up the the crisis crisis occur. Right, because it was on their watch that the subprime mortgage crisis unfolded, that the financial sector imploded. Uh, So, you know, so, yeah, what, what is one to say, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think that it's got to be more than than the Occupy movement. It's got to come out of the Occupy movement, be part of the Occupy movement, but it's got to be some other stuff that goes along with it. And one of that is to challenge the will and the courage of this president. He has got to start talking about, as you say, as you call them, bold, He's got to be bodacious, and you know, you know, Sandy. I like to talk about 
you know, all of us that come out of MIT, we like to talk about if I were God of the world, <laughs> the folks well, over no. at Harvard Business no, no, School. No, I don't think we want to see God of the world. <laughs> <laughs> the folks over at Harvard Business School, see, they want to be kings. When we come out of MIT, we want to be God. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but, the, but the thing that has to happen is that this president, and I'm I'm sure I understand, um, and, and I know that this president is never going to do it unless he is pushed to do it. And we talked about this what a year and a half ago, two years ago. Yeah. He's yes. he's never going to be the kind of person who does anything other than a response. You know, he hasn't even responded to Occupy yet because he realized Occupy is um, at a place where you're not clear where it's going to move. Right. Um, So uh, he hasn't responded. But one of the things that that if I were God of the United States of America, then I would simply say, okay, Congress, you, you're you not solving the problem. You have no results-oriented um, path that you have cleared. In six months, I'm going to sign a bill that does this. I'm going to simply do an executive order that begins to to, to address this, and it's it's going to be much more than my jobs bill that you can deal with now. I mean, he's not doing any hostage-taking, Sandy. What – have you met personally? Has anybody called you and said, oh, Dr. Darity, would you come and talk with us about this idea? Uh, no. Uh, but uh, I think to some degree I'm – Persona non grata in that circle. Yeah, but you used to be, you were a fellow at the governors of of the the, the Federal Reserve Bank. <laughs> I mean, well, um, well, no, I, I I do have some legitimizing aspects of my my, my credentials, but um, I think um, that um, you hear me ra- uh, raffling through these papers. I mean, you've been everything but God of the U.S. <laughs> no, 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 but but. They're, they're, there is a real fear, I think, within uh, the existing set of advisors to the president that uh, that they're afraid of proposing something that doesn't fit within the normal normal bounds of what's considered to be legitimate or safe policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, and, and and unless he has a, a group of advisors who are willing to push outside of those boundaries, then we're never going to see any policies that don't look like the ones that have already been advanced. Well, you, you know, the, the basics that, I mean, we like to sit around and we like to talk about, well, uh, this is a, a, a country that is now governed by corporations. Uh, we look at Newt Gingrich's uh, how many million dollars he made from Fannie Mae, and then you turn around on the next news segment and you hear about Fannie Mae not having any money and they're in a deficit, and then you look at programs like Social Security, Medicare, uh, federal workers, pensions, uh, all kinds of things are being gutted. Um, and, 
and somebody's got to do something, Sandy. And I, I, I know when I look at your proposal, and this is not the first time that we've talked about it. We had Dr. Derek uh, Hamilton from the New School. We talked about your proposal when he was here, talking about economic crisis. Right. Right. Who's benefiting from us being in an economic crisis? Um, well, one one thing that can happen with an economic crisis is, uh, in the long term, is uh, you can create a sufficient degree of desperation for work on the part of folks that they'll work for very little. Mm-hmm. That the yeah yeah so so you know some people view the the one of the objectives of having a sustained downturn as being uh, well you know, the, the, the 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 classic the classic description. Came from an economist called Michael Kolatsky, who said that you know when you have a downturn, what you're having is a capital strike rather than a labor strike. That is to say, <laughs> the capitalists are going on strike by withdrawing their funds from investment activities that would generate the kinds of employment that we have, and that this has the effect of actually, in some sense, softening the labor force so it'll accept a lower wages. Uh, less safe work conditions and the like. So, uh, so you could argue that there is somebody who potentially could benefit, but uh, it's certainly not the overwhelming majority of the population. Mm-hmm. And and I was looking at what was going on with the attack on uh, labor in Wisconsin and Ohio and Florida and Indiana, and thinking yes. to myself. They know that those people will cave when it comes down to whether I have a job or not. Right. I mean, you have to support a family. You need to put food on the table. And at a certain point, the desperation level is going to get so high that unless the desperation turns into a response that says we've got to throw these people out of political office and put people in who are going to do the right thing, uh, people will cave in otherwise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on this broadcast, I've been asking for more than a year and a half who's going to stand, what organizations are going to stand for some solutions that make sense, that um, have to be driven from the grassroots up with a lot of rancor. And I'm getting impatient uh, about who those organizations are. Are there organizations that's touting this, the NAACP, the Urban League, or the Somebody's? Uh, no, I mean the closest really is the uh, Congressional Black Caucus. You know, they have been the most creative and bold in trying to construct a set of uh, proposals to address the current crisis. Uh-huh, and that may be the reason why so many of them are being targeted for investigation of their own personal financial uh dealings well uh, i do not that's a, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting that's an interesting insight i i mean i can't i can't confirm or deny <laughs> mhm mhm now yeah. to to this thing that we we always hear from people and we're going to be taking your calls uh here with dr uh william Darity at 347-838-9852. But one of the things that I I, I wanted to to get your take on, uh, over the last uh, three years, uh, there has been a lot of rhetoric about the loss 
of the middle class and that there is no longer a real authentic middle class in the black community and that black people are getting poorer and poorer and that uh, that somehow uh, there is no answer for black people in regard to recovering from this economic crisis in any short time term. Well, there's no recovery for anyone until the crisis is ended. So, I mean, we we had for a, po- a period of time, we've, we've heard people say the recession is over, uh-huh. which it, it, it clearly is not in any meaningful sense. Uh, we've heard talk about a jobless recovery, which, of course, to me is an oxymoron. Uh, so uh, so the, the recession or depression, more accurately, is not over, and its ramifications are still quite harsh for a huge number of people across our society. So it's more harsh for black Americans because the nature of things in this country, our relative position is always worse. Um, so um, so there, there, there's no – but I don't see any potential grounds for recovery until the economy as a whole is truly in recovery. Mm-hmm. And what would that recovery look like? How How will it start? Um, I, I don't know. In the absence of some bold initiative that is um, is is directed at the objective of actually uh, putting people to work in a face-on manner. Uh huh. You know, I've been saying to people, and don't tell anybody. I know, Sandy, you will have my back on this. I've been saying to people that one of the ways in which to get the attention. Of, pe- of people, and for those of you out there listening, I, I, I don't do this uh, just because I said so. I'm not suggesting that you ought to do it, but I was thinking this is one of my economic, my financial fantasies that if every uh, black person in America who works goes into the personnel department on um, December 1st and says, I want to claim 12 dependents, whether they have them or not. I mean, under law, you can do that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and just to test the waters of what that means in terms of the national treasury, that you have all these people who are not paying any taxes for the month of December. I really ha I really think that you get people's attention through money. The other is that all black people withdraw from shopping. Well, I do have to get one more thing because I have a grandchild coming, but <laughs> but withdraw from shopping for the Kwanzaa, the Christmas and the I never did quite get this Black Friday thing, but they tell me that people go shopping the day after Thanksgiving, uh, and that we just withdraw from doing it, and that we don't use our credit cards, and that we only purchase essentials, food, and that's food and water, and transportation yeah. to work. 
uh, for a period of time until we get these people's attention because the way you get their attention, I mean, we got Bank of America's attention on the on the surcharge that they were the fee that they were going to charge for debit cards, and it was only five dollars. Right, right, right. right. Now, yeah. do things like well, that well, work? Well, there would have to there would have to be some sort of some form of uh, some some boycott action or protest action that that was nationwide to really have have an effect. Yeah. Mhm. I mean, I don't know what effect. Uh, it had that 725,000 people, it's estimated, that's what Van Jones is telling me, uh, moved their money from major banks into credit unions. I don't know what that means in terms of political what, what, what's the number he gave for the number of 725,000 on the oh, Saturday, okay. Move Money yeah. Saturday. Yeah, Move Money Saturday. That's, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's an interesting idea. I thought that was pretty good. I could move my money because I already bank with credit unions. Yeah, see, I already bank with a credit union also. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you know, I don't care if they print me a receipt with a check, with a copy of the check on it or something, whatever that is. Yeah. But I think it has to be drastic, and I think that, and I know you're an economist and you're thinking much more complex in much more complex ways than I am about finance and the economy. That's a really, that's really uh, intriguing, an intriguing idea to get people to do it. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. Will it have the impact yeah. that I obviously think that it could have? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But, I mean, but it would certainly be worthwhile to see, and, and people mm-hmm. would actually be better off if they had their accounts with credit unions. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have um, a little over 2,000 followers on Facebook um, with three f- Facebook pages. And one of the things that I'm going to do this week is I'm going to send out to all of these people a copy of your proposal, uh, Direct Route to Full Employment, this, this, this article, this publication, and ask them to forward it to the Office of Domestic Affairs at the White House. Okay. All right. Well. Because I think that somehow we've got to break into having the political capital as a community yeah. uh, to do something different. If we don't do something different, uh, I'm hearing one of the premier economists in the country telling me that if we don't do anything different, we're not going to see anything different. And I al- al- already believe that if you keep doing what you're doing, you keep getting what you're getting. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, um, and we do a lot of talking about the offshore um, manufacturers. You know, I was in manufacturing for many, many years, and, you know, you came to, into MIT um, um, much later than when I was there, but really, I've been really? yeah. Uh, I okay. was a fellow at the Sloan School, uh, okay. and I came out in in 1973. Okay, okay. I was there by myself. All right, <laughs> <laughs> and you know what yeah. that was like. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Yeah. Very strange. <laughs> 
I was a bit more fortunate. There was there was a, a small community of black PhD students in economics when I was Yeah, there. well, I was in the, I wasn't in a doctoral program. I was um in the um business and industrial communications program at Sloan and um the thing that saved me was I was a Polaroid fellow. And Polaroid was right down the street, and it was a huge progressive corporation, and everyone thought I was really neat because um, I was a Polaroid fellow. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, I've been thinking for a very long time that we keep having the riches that the wealth that we do have, we keep squandering it. Um, and in the face of the stress of our country going from some kind of democracy to no kind of democracy um, has put people in a, in a place where they really have to pay attention and they really should be paying attention. And, and I'm wondering from you, in terms of our economy, tell our audience where they ought to be playing – paying attention? Where should they be paying attention? Uh, I think they should be paying very close attention to two two measures. Um, One measure is the black unemployment rate, which is always a signal of how badly this economy is doing. Um, It's it's very rare for the black unemployment rate to be below 8%. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, and, but 8% is considered to be a very high unemployment rate, particularly among white males. Okay. So mm-hmm. um, so look at the black unemployment rate, and, and to the extent that it's anywhere above 10%, then this would suggest that things are really, uh, that the economy is still in, in quite a bit of a, uh, uh, quite a bit of a downturn. The other thing is to look at the the poverty rate, which is now I think over it's about thirty percent for African Americans, um, and that means that in in essentially one in three Black Americans have an income that is below the the poverty level. So, um, you know, to the extent that the poverty rate uh, is is anywhere above uh, 20% for African Americans. That's also a signal that the economy as a whole is not doing well. So mm-hmm. if, we're, if we're looking about signals about the economy's overall performance, I would say look at the uh, black unemployment rate and the black poverty rate, uh, and those are, are pretty good signals of, of of what's happening to the, the economy yeah. as a whole. Yeah. One of the things that I didn't, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about reparations, because I think many people talk about reparations. They read material about reparations, but they really don't understand what reparations is all about, and you have done such a fantastic job in framing how we should be thinking about it. Uh, For those of you who are joining us, you're listening to Our Common Ground and our guest tonight is the preeminent economist, Dr. William Sandy Darity. Uh, his most recent books are Economics, Economic, Economics, Economics and Expectations, Micro Foundations to 
Macro Applications, and that was co-authored with Warren Young. And one of my favorite, Sandy, I really want to tell you this, um, um, your your um, Disparities Perspective book is just a wonderful book. And if you want to find out about that book, you can go to our community forum at ourcommonground-talk.ning.com and get some excerpts from the book, and then you can go buy the book. Our guest tonight, Dr. William Darity. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about reparations and taking your calls at 347-838-9852. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, Dr. William Sandy Darity, economist and professor of public policy at Duke University and North Carolina University at Chapel Hill. He's a visiting professor at Stanford University this year, but he is also a blues guitarist. We thank him for being with us tonight, and we thank you for being with us tonight. shaped me as an actor, as a musician, as a human being. So when she was diagnosed with colon cancer, it was like our entire family got cancer. And she died when she was only 56, so this is personal. And hopefully my heartbreak is your wake-up call. You can prevent colorectal cancer. If you're 50 or older, get screened. Screening saves lives. looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, what is this country coming to? What have these bigoted races, and I'll repeat it, bigoted races. Anybody wants to challenge me on that? Have at, have at. Reload some Alpha, the Mo Alpha Show, on TruthWorks Network. TruthWorks Network, nightly call-in talk radio. It's the Black Voice Collaborative, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our number, 347-838-9852 to join us in this discussion. I'm Janice Graham, and as always, I'll be listening for you, 347-838-9852. And 
Dr. William Sandy Darity is joining us here again at our common ground. And Sandy, that was a mistake. You're you are on the harmonica in your. That's right. That's band. right. It's my my, my <laughs> son. One of my sons is a guitarist, but I'm a harmonica player. You know, I found your son online, and I oh. wondered if he were was your son. I listened to some of his music on YouTube. Is Will Darity. Yes, I love, and he says that he wants to play it with funk all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And my 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 older son, my older son Aiden is a uh, is a is a uh, is a hip hop MC. Really? So is he connected with the Beast in um, uh, Pierce Freelon? Well, he and Pierce used to be a, a tandem that was called Language Arts. Wow. But the Beast is Pierce's, uh, is Pierce's group, and Aiden is developing a group of his own. Uh-huh. How often do you get a chance to play? Um, I, I, guess I, I guess I get to play maybe about once a month. Wow. Yeah, yeah. When I'm in um, the area, I'm definitely going to, because blues is... Blues is is one of the music genres that I absolutely love. Uh, well, Aiden Darity, uh, Aiden has a uh, a piece that's available online called Post Racial America, where his brother Will plays guitar and I play harmonica on it. I have to, I definitely have to find it. I was cruising for some of your music and I came up with your son Will. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I'm you. You'll have to send me that. I'd, okay. I'd I'd love to hear it. I mean, I'm a I'm a big big fan. Up until about two years ago, uh, I always celebrated my birthday uh, with BB King. All right, all right. Well, okay. <laughs> and, we're uh, we're, in the, I, we're in the same zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did get a chance, and you know, and and I mean, if if you ever roll up on me at the stoplight. I'm definitely into either Stevie Ray Vaughan or Albert Collins or BB well, King, okay, and so, it's so, so on your break, your break music. Uh, at first, it was BB uh, King's Chains and Things, right? And then the second time, it was Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I've been playing it for you. We're going to go to our phones, and then we're going to move into our segment to talk about reparations with Dr. William. Sandy Darity, the great harmonica blues player. Uh, but uh, let's go to 313. 313, you're on the air at Our Common Ground with Dr. Darity. I respect you. What's your question or comment? 313, we're rolling right up on you. Well, I guess that's one of our listeners who listens by some smartphone device. Sandy, before we start talking about this, I did take some time to, uh, I want to bring in an interview that you did at Duke University Radio or TV, Uh, some, um, maybe, I don't know, I don't remember how long ago it was, but you were talking about reparations, and I think that one of the things that people get concerned confused about when they begin to think about reparations and we better get serious about it because there might not be any money left in the treasury (laughs) that'll be the next (laughs) excuse that'll be the next excuse we don't have any money um 
But well, I, well, it, I, I suspect that uh, when Derek Hamilton was on your program, he talked about a proposal that's not reparations per se, mm-hmm. but is a proposal that is intended to address the huge wealth disparities that exist. Uh, which which he and I called the baby bonds. Baby proposal. bonds, yes. Yeah, we got we, did, we got we that title from that. the late the late Manning Marable. Yeah, we used to call our proposal that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we would. Uh, we're going to talk about that, but I want people to take a listen uh, to that interview. Understand that this is not an absolutely absurd idea. Uh, that it is a way of addressing our nation's tortured history around slavery and racism, and that it creates the possibility for us bringing to a close or or to a reconciliation uh, around these issues in a way that that we have not been able to in the absence of a reparations program. With respect to who would be eligible to receive reparations, I have uh, come come to the view uh, after after long conversations with my with my wife actually, uh, I've come to the view that there should be two criteria. Uh, the first is that the uh, individual should have to establish that he or she had an ancestor who was enslaved in the United States, and then the second criteria would be that the individual would have to indicate that for at least 10 years before the onset of the reparations program that in some official document that he or she indicated that they were racially either black, colored, Negro, or African American. Okay. So that's who would be eligible. Uh, in terms of the magnitude, the baseline from my perspective is the present value of the 40 acres and the implements or the mule. Uh, The present value of the 40 acres that was to be distributed to the 4 million ex-slaves at the time of emancipation. And then we can think about how that number should be increased to adjust for the the social penalties associated with uh, Jim Crow and ongoing discrimination. But that would be the baseline. And yes, the numbers could get quite huge. They could be in the vicinity of three to six trillion dollars. Final thing is, how should this be paid? I think in terms of reparations as constituting a portfolio of options so that there would be a total sum, but the total sum could be distributed partially in terms of checks to individual African Americans that might be distributed over a period of years, not necessarily one point in time. It could also include a trust fund that people could draw upon if they have projects that have merit. Uh, to develop their, 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 their businesses or, or to use those resources to further their education. Uh, there could be some form of tax relief. I mean, there could be a variety of ways we could do this. There's nothing that commits us to having a reparations program that takes a single form. In fact, you talked about using the model that the Germans used in compensating Holocaust victims, which turned out to be payments of $100 a month. To individuals. Um, to individuals. And also there were payments made to an institution, to the State of Israel, uh, to assist it in its development and survival. So you could have some forms of institution building that might take place as a part of the overall reparations package. So I'm fairly open-minded about how, how this might be done. 
as long as it has the constructive aim of closing the disparities that exist in the society. Now, we do have some experience with paying reparations. Uh, Japanese Americans who were interned after World War, during World War II, um, were 24 years later um, received reparations for property lost. And then in 1988, some 60,000 people received payments of $20,000. That seems like a. Um, uh, and, and that was by legislation of, of U.S. Congress. Yeah. It seems doable almost, and I'm wondering how many people were talking about using the eligibility guidelines you talked about, um, having identified yourself as African American or Negro within the last 10 years. How big a population are we talking about? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not certain. I mean, if, if I were to look at census estimates of the number of individuals who might be identified as black or African American in the United States, then we're talking about approximately uh, 22 million people to 25 million people. But in terms of the numbers who could actually meet both of the criteria, then I'm, I, I would assume it would be somewhat smaller than that. Uh, but yes, it's a, it's a much larger potential population that would be the target population than the recipients of reparations for the incarceration of Japanese Americans. And some would say if we were to do what you've just uh, outlined, we would bankrupt the U.S.? Well, if we're talking about three to six trillion dollars as a sort of a rough range, the national debt is larger than that. So uh, depending upon how you executed the program, uh, if the payments are not made all at one point in time and if they take the form of programs, include programs like trust funds and the like, then I, I certainly think it's feasible to do it. Mm -hmm. The National uh, Urban League and the NAACP have not officially backed reparations. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I, I suspect it's because uh, there, there still is this sentiment among some elements of the African-American community that this is impossible, it's pie in the sky, and uh, that in some ways their credibility are, will not be taken as seriously if they commit themselves to this, this option. But again, I say there are many things that we have thought were unlikely to occur that are morally correct and are probably policy-wise quite correct uh, that, that, that we didn't think would occur that, that actually have come to pass. And so uh, I, I would hope that eventually those, those, those organizations would support this as well. We have just a couple of seconds, but you yourself have said that the task of building a national movement of black reparations is daunting. Yes. Where, where do you go from here, and, and, and how much company do you have? Well, there, there are, are people who have been in pursuit of this goal for many, many years, uh, like the organization in COBRA that uh, has a, a wonderful lawyer who works with them, Adjua Ayatoro, who has been talking about this. There are attorneys who have been pursuing litigation around reparations, including Charles Ogletree. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not alone in, in pursuing this, uh, but uh, I think that the best we can do is continue to try to have opportunities to engage in conversations to help people understand that this is not an absolutely absurd idea, uh, that it is a way of addressing our nation's tortured history around slavery and racism, and that it creates the possibility for us bringing to a close or, or to a reconciliation uh, around these issues in a way that, that we have not been able to in the absence of... This is Our Common Ground, broadcasting live from our studios at Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham. Tonight, economic disparities in America. Coming up, our discussion with Dr. William Darity on reparations. Stay tuned and we'll take your calls.
Our Common Ground, broadcasting bold, brave, and black. Dr. Darity, one of the things that you say in that clip gives me shivers, and that is a way of, and you talk about, Uh, You end your interview with a way of repairing our tortured history in this country. Have you had any changes of thought or idea uh, about what you said in that interview? Uh, No, (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) As simple as that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, and and but what one of the things that that is clear is that we have people who are shy, who are outright right scared to talk about this issue of reparations in public, our leadership as well as our misleadership. But when you look at how reparations have been executed all over the globe, it's it's puzzling as to why there are black people who will say it will never happen, can never happen, and don't support the work of the orga- some the organizations that are talking about it, and there is um, a an organization, organizational efforts right now to really put some force behind uh, the move to raise the issue authentically about reparations for descendants of the slaves in this country. Yeah, so one of the crucial factors that was involved in the, the construction of a plan for reparations for the Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II was the formation of a commission, a congressional commission that was responsible for providing a comprehensive report on the incarceration and coming up with a set of proposals. And I think for a number of years, John Conyers has called for the formation of a commission that would examine the status and history of black Americans and make recommendations about what needs to be done, including the possible recommendation for a reparations program. Um, so, uh, but but that bill has never gotten out of committee in the House of Representatives, and so uh, so it's never actually received uh-huh. a direct vote on the floor of Congress. But that's. That's the uh, that's the the way in which this process ought to begin, is with a comprehensive investigation of the uh, the historical and current status of racial economic inequality in the United States. Mm-hmm. We've got some callers and people are, are are very anxious to talk about this issue. Let's go to our phones. 314, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Good evening to both of you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Darity, question that I have uh, for you is, do you feel that uh, the United States has made a major paradigm shift from capitalism to fascism? And 
where, where do you see this evolving to as far as a country going in this direction and losing more of their rights as far as Americans are concerned? So uh, I presume by fascism you mean uh, corporations. dimension. Corporate power that leads to forms of political totalitarianism. That's correct. Yeah. So I I I certainly uh, wouldn't say that we're there at this moment, but there are a number of factors, or there's lots of pieces of evidence that suggest that we could go there. so, uh, so certainly that's a that's a deep concern, and it's very frightening. And as you, and as you see it evolving in that direction, how do you see Americans really uh, starting to protect themselves? I see the you know Occupy Wall Street uh, people, and, and particularly college students, are now and really being, I, I would say, somewhat effective in what they're doing. And I'm, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of strategists from the past that have given them assistance in how to do this. Um, but the American uh, populace as a whole to appear to be very asleep, even in the understanding of what fascism is, and uh, the corporations uh, uh, giving now the appearance of taking over a democracy. Um, how? What would be the best advice could you give to Americans in, uh, ha- in waking up about what's happening and how to protect themselves? Well, I'm not as knowledgeable about political action as I think I am about the design of economic policy, but I would think that in any situation where people's capacity to express themselves freely and to uh and to exercise their their uh constitutional rights freely or in jeopardy uh a combination of mass action and utilization of new media uh, becomes an avenue for trying to protect yourself so you, you uh, the new media the new we're media on the right affords the new media affords a tremendous amount of opportunity for people to be in communication with one another in ways that they have not been able to in the past. And uh, it may be possible to transmit information about about situations in which uh, our rights are in jeopardy in a way that we couldn't in the past. And, And people have to then respond once they're informed. You know, Caller, one of the things that um, has become an impediment politically is that you've got a cadre, a literal army of ignoramuses who are being elected into public office who have to weigh these issues both in 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 the US Congress as well at as the local level I mean if if you pose the same question to for instance the governor of Florida he would be at a loss to understand where the hell you are coming from where did you pick up this stuff fascism what are you talking about we're talking about um the free market <laughs> so 
I mean, you've got Michelle Bachman who came out today and said essentially that she wants to, uh, her platform now is to eliminate public housing, food stamps, and any form of federal um, uh, financial assistance to families in need. <laughs> well, that would, that and would that's be fine. what you've it, got to overcome. That would be fine if we had a federal job guarantee in place. And thank you. So why don't we send your paper <laughs> to Michelle Bachman and say, uh, but the problem is they they really don't want to to solve the problems. They don't want solutions. What they want is to protect the interests of the people who truly elect them, and that's not the people. Right. Right. I, I agree. Do you find that our people uh, would you would you see that most Americans are very ignorant as far as being knowledgeable of what their rights are as compared to the rest of the free world or world in general? I, I don't really know the answer to that. I know that we occasionally get these studies about that indicate uh, you know that uh, American school children who are in tenth, eleventh, or twelfth grade don't know where XYZ country is or they don't know that a particular phrase is from the Declaration of Independence versus being from the uh, Bill of Rights. But, uh, but I, I really don't know how, how we compare necessarily with, other, with folks in other parts of the world. Let me, let me try to respond to that as well. I think that one of the things, I, I would not say that all American people are ignorant and they um, have an illiteracy problem about the world in which they live, both politically and economically, but I would say that most people are just simply overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed by the lies that they hear and the inability to, they come so fast that it's hard to process the information that they do have in the face of the lies, and you've got a media who allows propaganda machines to take over. So uh, Americans are overwhelmed for the most part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've got We're to move on to another caller, but thank, thank you, you very much. For, um, and we hope that that's a new number for us. Uh, we hope that you'll be with us each Saturday here at Our Common Ground uh, to talk about these things. I'm going to talk about a special that we're going to do because I think there are some voices out there that need to be heard, and they need to be heard more clearly, and we need to provide a way in which for all of you to be able to process the messages that they, they um, are sending out. So thank you for your call. Uh, Dennis, um, I've probably got about 10 more minutes. Okay, we'll take one more call and then um, we're going to say goodbye to Dr. Darity. 423, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. 423. Okay, that's another listener on a listening device. Okay. Uh, 313. We're coming back the, at the you. New, the new media is not working as well as I, I know. Three one three, you're on the air. Nope, that's not it either. 
Okay. Uh, Sandy, I, I think that uh, we can almost conclude that most of, I mean, there have been people who have said that there are clear ways, you know, Bernie Sanders and and Barney Frank and some others who have said that increasing the tax um, rates of the wealthy, the 1% in this country, would solve all of these problems. What's your take on that? No, it, it wouldn't solve all these problems. It, 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 may be, it may be a good thing to do, but it's not going to solve the problems. What, what really matters is how we spend the revenues that we have and what we spend them on. It's not exclusively a question of increasing the revenue stream. And, and of course, you could increase the revenue stream anyway with the existing tax structure if you restored people's incomes to the levels that existed at least before the Great Recession started. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At least before at the least. Great Recession. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things before you go that I want to say to you is that, you know, we had talked about the exclusion, the isolation of black economists uh, in this country, and there are... Uh, there are they are few in numbers compared to mainstream um, non-black economists, and we're not hearing their voices. And I, you know, sometimes I look at this thing called current TV, and I look at um, MSNBC, and I'm saying, wait a minute, you people are talking about the economy, and you're talking about poor people, and the majority of poor people in this country are of color, how come we're not seeing off-color economists? Every time I turn around, and I love Robert Riggs, but I mean, come on. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I can only speculate as to why that's the case. You know, maybe the most generous speculation is that they don't know about us. Yeah. Uh, a less a less generous speculation is that uh, they they know of black economists, but they are not particularly enthusiastic about the perspective that many of us might offer. Uh -huh. uh, although although you know there's some black economists who you can you can find fairly easily who would hew to the party lines for each one of the parties. Uh huh. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. so uh, you know, but. Uh, but but why we're relatively less visible, I'm not sure. I mean, I see uh, at least one of my colleagues, uh, Bill Rogers, who appears uh, fairly somewhat regularly, I think, on CNN. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, but we're not we're not highly visible. Generally. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and I, I, you know, that that's a great question. I mean, you know, what what's the reason? I don't know. Well, I know the reason. Uh <laughs> And it's your last, you know, it's like it's like anything else in this country that a perspective which is different from the party line is simply a hard perspective to get through. Sandy, we have one more caller, and this caller has been waiting for a while, and I want to go to it. 404, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for being with us. At our common ground, real quick. Hi, I uh, respect you too, and thank you. 
Dr. Uh, Darity, I was listening to what you were talking about and love your program. Actually, I'll probably even do some blogging about it and probably paste links all over Facebook and everywhere else that I can just to Thank get you, the word sir. out. I mean, I'm loving it, seriously. But there was one thing that, that I would remember you talking about as far as the unemployment rate, and this is something that I just recently found out myself going to the uh, site, the uh, U.S. Department of uh, Labor Statistics, right? Right. And they talk about the unemployment rate constantly hovering somewhere around nine, nine and a half, nine, you know, almost ten percent, et cetera. Overall, maybe about sixteen percent in the black community. Right. However, when you look at the fact that uh, the number of people who are actually working is typically right around sixty to sixty-five percent overall in the fifties in the black community, then the Instead of saying, though, that 35% of the people are unemployed overall, right. Right. they say that it's now point something percent, and the rest of the people are not in the workforce. Some of these people don't right. go to the Department of Labor and sign up, you know, they because they don't, they're That's right. They don't, those, they don't report them. Right. What well, well, the experience for. is that they get jobs elsewhere and not through the Department of Labor. They typically don't help, you know. Right. But not right. only that, to get to that 65%, Overall, and to get to that 50-some percent in the black community overall, they count everyone who worked one hour that week. That's great. That means the people that go down to the labor pool and get like one four-hour job one day that week, they're employed. That's correct. That's that's why so I the said stats that, that are these, these a guys, lot these, more deceptive. <laughs> right. That these numbers these numbers don't include the people who have what what we refer to as part time employment who would like to work more because they're yeah. treated as being employed. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. absolutely right. This is correct. And, and that's what people have to know that uh, you know you, you know these these numbers are being played around with. You see what I'm saying? Just yeah. to yeah. to make things not look as bleak as they really are. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so there, there's definitely strong evidence that the folks who are placed in this category that we call the discouraged unemployed, people who are no longer looking for work, who are out of work because they've given up the process of looking for work, that that's 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 uh, that's a growing segment. Of the people who yeah. are out and out jobless, yeah, yeah, uh, and, but don't and that's you think that's also because, the, because the, the, the the situation's so 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 bleak that in terms of, of terms of finding work. But don't you think that that's also a padded statistic? Simply because, in other words, they want to they want to label the people as the discouraged ones, as opposed, you know, just because maybe they're not going out like every day, maybe they're searching online most of the time. You know, because a lot of people want you to send in a resume first, you know, apply online. You know, I mean, there are a lot of different rules to to some extent. And, and, and there's there's another dimension, which is the fact that you are out of work now is creating a stigma from the standpoint of employers who are increasingly advertising jobs that are only open to people who are currently employed. Well, the president at one point has taken a position against that, and um, um, you know, it 
it, it just seems to me that some bold and uh, very uh, progressive uh, legislator ought to make a law. I mean, there ought to be a law if a person is qualified and because he's not, because he's, he or she's not working, shouldn't be a prerequisite uh, to be considered for a job. That's just crazy. Right. I agree. Yeah. yeah. And it's another and, one of the corporate strategies to... Oh, yeah. Uh, well, everything is about driving wages down. It's, it's like the, the illegal immigration problem that we have here. It's actually illegal aliens, but if, if you see, they, they kick Lou Dobbs off of CNN because he refused to call them immigrants. They're aliens. They're not here legally. And then to actually say that 10 to 15 million people here doesn't affect the rest of us, and we had no problem with them before the present job deficit. It wasn't about the job deficit. Everyone who was a working-class citizen had problems with them before because they were driving the wages down, okay? But but big business had no problems with them because they wanted the wages to go down. (laughs) Exactly. Farfo, we're going to have to let you go, but we thank you so very much. And if we can be of any assistance to you spreading the OCG word, uh, just let me know. I've posted my email address which is OCGinfo at Our Common Ground in our chat room. Thank you so much for joining us I will be in touch. Okay, thank you. Sandy Darity, it's so good to have you back. I love brilliant people who have common sense. Uh. You know, <laughs> you're pretty generous. <laughs> well, my my mother's always saying to me, "You're brilliant, but you don't have any common sense." <laughs> so, you know, if I can if I can spread the love around, I certainly would. And I I, I just uh, look forward to having you uh, again with us at our common ground as we try to. Uh, balance and stabilize ourselves in our communities, um, and um, you know I'm still shaking up the churches. You know how I feel about the churches. <laughs> that, that should be another black. We should have a Black Sunday. No offerings at the church. That everybody goes out. And uh, that would be interesting. Yeah. That would be very interesting. Yeah. So I hope you you're mobil- enjoying. You mobilize. Your- you mobilize the ministers then. <laughs> I know. I do have a couple of ministers after me already, and they have been for years. Uh, I hope you're enjoying your stay at Stanford. I'm sure yes. they're missing you at Duke. Uh, and one question. How did the National Conference on Economic Whatever you went to on Friday in New York City go? No, it wasn't in New York. It was in It's in D.C., after the African American oh. Economic Summit. And it was uh, – it, it, it coincided with the Joint Center – uh, for political and economic studies, introducing their new institute on uh, civic engagement and governance. Wow! And, we'll uh, have to. So it, it, it was it was really a very very uh, very 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 powerful and and good day. Great. We'll have yeah. to get that report <laughs> and okay. report on it. Report on the report. That's very, really yeah. interesting that they're setting up a new new institute. I've had a long long standing relationship. Um, um, with them, and so I'll be looking at that. Sandy, enjoy your time in California, and we look forward to you coming back east and being with us 
as we, especially as we go into this uh, 2012 campaign period. Thanks as always, Janice. Okay. Thank Good you, time. and I'll be looking for that music. Okay. And here's something Great. for you as you leave us. Yeah, thanks. Bury me deep in these black and gold cities. Play two mics on my chest. 
and tell my royal lions that I did my best. I'm a royal lion, hear me roar, just a sword. I'm going to bring my people to the light, just to cure. I'm a royal lion, hear me roar, this is war. Knowledge is the shield, your tongue is the sword. The sky is the limit, but we shackled to the floor. I'm going to bring my people to the light, this is war. Royal lion, mob, into the lion. Enter the Lion's Den with LDX, featuring Information Man. Only at TruthWorks Network, Thursdays, Fridays, 9 p.m., East Coast, West Coast, meets. I'm going to bring my people to the light this Royal Lion Mob, into the Lion. Into the Lion. Into the Lion. And we thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. And we especially thank our guest, Dr. William A. Sandy Darity, um, for joining us and trying to at least bring some semblance and frame the rationale, the reason, the understanding of what's happening in as we experience and try to navigate this economic crisis. I want to thank our guests in our chat room, House Music Lover, Meeting of the Minds, Minister Barrett, Alpho, and um, all of you who have joined us tonight uh, to talk about these issues. I also want to tell you about our programming. Uh, Our Common Ground sponsors a channel, a network called TruthWorks, and what we have done is we have tried to put together a collaboration of different talk show uh, programs that um, provide some insight, illumination, and perspective for and about the black community on issues of current events. On Saturday, 3 p.m., there is the Alpha Show, which is just damn politics, and Alpha brings his A-game uh, each week, serious issues and pulling them apart and, and, and peeling that onion. On Wednesday night, Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and Friends at 9 p.m., And uh, it is a collage of current events and issues uh, in and about the African-American experience. On Thursdays and Fridays, there's Enter the Lion's Den with LDX and Information Man. They are the children of Huey Newton and the Black Power Movement those children who attended the breakfast schools, the first generation of black children in this country who got political training, um, and um, they are Swagger Talk Radio, and we hope that you will join them each Thursday and Friday at 9 p.m. And don't forget, every Monday through Friday at 11 a.m., it's my sister, India Declare, with the I Declare show, 11 to 1 p.m. here at Blog Talk Radio. And we suggest that you join the American African-American History Network with Michael M. Hotep, 
uh, each Monday night, uh, 7 to 9. Thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. And as always, we will be here speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham. And next week, it's archive night, but we'll be right back here with Isaiah Washington, author, activist, and actor. 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you. You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.